Blessed are you, Adonai, God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Amen. Breshit, Genesis chapter 8. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God caused a spirit to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed, and the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters then receded upon the earth, receding continuously, and the waters diminished at the end of 150 days. And the ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Arat. The waters were continuously diminishing until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the top of the mountains became visible. And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. He sent out the raven, and it kept going and returning until the waters dried from upon the earth. Then he sent out the dove from him to see whether... The waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove could not find a resting place for the sole of its foot, and it returned to him to the ark, for water was upon the surface of the earth. So he put forth his hand and took it and brought him into the ark. And he waited again another seven days and again sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, an olive leaf was it had plucked in its bill. And Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited again another seven days and sent the dove forth, and it did not return to him again. And it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, and the first of the month, the waters dried from upon the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, looked, and behold, the surface of the ground had dried. And the second month, on the 17th, 27th, so the God day of the month, the earth was fully dried. God spoke to Noah, saying, Go forth from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives, every living being that is with you of all flesh, of birds, of the animals, and all the creeping things that move on the earth. Order them out with you, and let them teem upon the earth, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went forth, and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him, every living being, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that creeps on the earth, came out of the ark by their families. Then Noah built an altar to Adonai and took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered bird off, burnt offerings on the altar. And Adonai smelled the pleasing aroma, and Adonai said in his heart, I will not continue to curse again the ground because of man, since the imagery of man's heart is evil from its youth. Nor will I again continue to smite every living being as I have done continuously all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Amen. We were studying this passage earlier this week, and Yosef Klein said to me, um, Yashar Koach, Rabbi, you did a great job um, orchestrating the readings because the sages point out that the rain stopped on the 28th of Kislev. And of course, I said... You're welcome. Actually, what I said was, what? I had no idea. I had no idea. I wasn't planning that. But it just so happens that we're reading about the, the rain stopping and the flood ending and Noah leaving the ark and a renewal of the earth that is taking place. In order to make the earth God's home, he had to mikvah it in the flood and then it, it emerged from the flood, a renewed, a rededicated sanctuary for the living God. It just so happens that all that happened now. The 28th of Kislev is this coming week, during Hanukkah, or Hanukkah. And so it's just interesting to how Hashem works things out, how He works out our study and teaches us lessons in real time. While we're going through the very events, we're going to be celebrating Hanukkah and remembering this episode of Noah ending the flood and starting a renew and having a renewal. 
And then, as Ahmet aptly pointed out, the dove came back with an olive leaf in its mouth that it had torn, some say from either, as an opinion, that it either came from Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, or that it came from Ganadin. But it's interesting because what are we, what is one of the miracles we're celebrating during Hanukkah is what? Oil, olive oil. So the dove brings a leaf back, right? Now God initially, or excuse me, Noah initially sent out the raven. And this is also an interesting picture because the raven did not want to go and the sages bring down that Noah, who had the ability, according to the ancient sages, he had the ability to communicate with, with animals like, like Adam did. Makes sense since he's going to have these animals in his, his, uh, his luxury yacht for a year. They were there for a year in, inside the boat. That's a carnival cruise line, isn't it? Just kidding. But anyway, um, he, he wanted, Noah wanted to curse the raven and, and basically destroy it. And God said, no, because I've got a job for the raven. Because there's going to be a time when my prophet Eliyahu is going to need to be fed. And I'm going to send the raven daily to bring him all of his food. I want you to think about that little interesting picture right there because the raven is a non-kosher bird bringing kosher food to God's prophet. And Hashem, I think, through that I derive this kind of imagery of sometimes God's got to send seemingly unkosher way to bring truth, right? You say, well, I don't, why, I, who would eat from a raven today? But yet God used the raven. Could have used a dove. Could have used a pigeon. Could have used anything, right? Could have used a, uh, a duck. They're all kosher. But he chose the raven. It talks about Noah on this boat, this great ship, and we think about there was a flood. It was horrible. Everybody drowned. We talked about that last week. If you imagine what that scene must have looked like and felt like, and then we have Noah on the boat. And I don't think we think much about Noah. You know, he was on the boat. There was a bunch of animals. And so you're on the boat for a year. But the ship, this, this rain and the waters of the deep coming forth would have been a tumultuous um, high seas storm that was happening. I've never been in such a storm. I've been on some, in some bad waters on a little bitty boat. Uh, but... Um, Menashe was telling a story about when he was in the Navy and they set sail on his ship and it was 90 foot, 90 foot swells. And he was telling a story about how when he walked down the, uh, the hallway that he had, to, he had to put one foot on the bulkhead, on the sidewall, because um, that's how the ship was turning. Um, and you can imagine that's a ship that has the modern day ship, well fairly modern, there were sails back in, when he was in the Navy. What? Yeah, switching over. What did Blackbeard look like anyway? Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, but that was a modern ship, and it had modern engines and power. Can you imagine? It was it was able, at least to a certain extent, to plow through that storm. But yet, we have here, Noah's ship has no power. There's no engine. There's no sails. He's being rocked and forth, back and forth. He's having to tend to the animals. There's, I don't know how many animals on there, but there's a lot of them. And he's having to tend to all of them and feed them, he and his sons. And the sages bring down that, that Noah was utterly exhausted. He was exhausted to the point that he was throwing up blood on the ark. He was literally that, and we don't think about those kind of things. We think that, wait a minute, Noah was saved and the world around him was terrible and he was standing out on the bow and it was very, very, very comfortable and he had, you know, they had the, um, the little, uh, you know, game board over there and he's just kind of looking around and going, wow, this is really, really terrible. This is horrible going on here. I wish people were in the boat. No, actually, he's in the boat throwing up blood and just working himself to death trying to keep 
the animal's alive and he's pleading with God, please, can we end this and let me out? And it's reminded me of an insight that I didn't get to share from the, um, from the Midrash Shabbat from last week, coupled with an insight from this week's parashah, Vayeshev. And it's talking about um, that Jacob settled, but yet when he settled, that's what the, what the opening of the parashah is named after the first couple of words, or first words often, and Vayeshev, Yaakov, Jacob settled. But it says here, from the contrast between the words used for Jacob and his father settled, which implies a permanency and a sojourn, but it, it wasn't a time of peace. In fact, we have now Joseph essentially being kidnapped or sold into slavery. And it says, though the righteous seek tranquility, the Holy One, blessed be he, says to them, are the righteous not satisfied with what awaits them in the world to come, that they expect to live at ease in this world too? Ladies and gentlemen, I want to, as you, as you know, well, if you've been around here any length of time, some of you who are brand new don't realize this, but um, my heart is to teach you biblical truth. But the beautiful thing about Judaism is that it's not limited to the spiritual realm. See, a lot of times in the Greco-Roman mindset, we like to compartmentalize. I go and I have a spiritual lesson here, and then I go over here to this world, and I have a, a natural lesson, and then I go over here, and I have like a work lesson, and those are just different parts of my life. Whereas Judaism deals with the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. So the lessons that we learn about the spirit realm and about what it means to be in the kingdom of God, those very same lessons translate in, in how to be a good employee over at XYZ Enterprises. So I want to teach you, among so many other things, how to be a successful person as a believer, as a follower of Yeshua who is living the life that Yeshua lived and living the faith that Yeshua lived as, as well as the apostles. Yes, to include Paul. And that is that we should be careful that we don't want God to give us a nice, cruisy, easy life. And I know that's counterintuitive because you're like, well, doesn't, doesn't God bless the righteous and doesn't he provide for our... Yes, yes, but we have to understand that if we want God to... Listen, I just want to have... I want my life to be like a perpetual vacation with no problems. That's not good. The sages point out that if you have not had a challenge within 40 days, something is bad wrong. Because why? Because the enemy only wants to mess with those who are doing God's will, and God is testing us to make sure we're, we're refined. What if you went to the gym and you had a personal trainer and you've been going there for a month or two or three and the personal trainer, and all that time, never added any weight to your workout. And, you know, for, when you first started doing it, you're like, oh, man, this is kind of tough. You're shaking. You're, you wake up the next morning, you feel like you've been in a car accident. <laughs> Honey, can you pour me a cup of coffee? And is there a straw right there? But then after a, couple, after a month or two, you know, you're, you're banging that weight out. Oh, boy, ain't nothing. And then he doesn't ever add any weight, so now you're doing one arm. And you switch arms. And you think you're doing something good, but in fact, you're stagnant. And eventually, you'll start regressing because as you age, you'll get weaker. So it says, this is the import of the sages' teaching. It says here in the comments about Joseph and Jacob that this world is not the place where the righteous can expect tranquility. There is too much. Listen to this. I love the way this. This is not the place to experience tranquility. Why? Think about when you go on vacation. When you go on vacation, you typically put the work aside. And you're on vacation, you're on holiday, not to do work, but just to enjoy, say, your self. So what is vacation all about? Your self. What is work about? When we work, we work for the man. That's the common thing we say in Los Estados Unidos. We are working for the man. That may be a negative way to look at it, but nevertheless, you're working for some, something else. You're working for a common vision that your company has. 
In other words, it's not about you. When you go to work, you're not going to work for yourself. You're going to work for the mission. Right? But when you go to vacation, it's all about yourself, and you're not doing any work. So it's saying here, this is the import of the sage's teaching, that this world is not the place where the righteous can expect tranquility. This, there is too much to accomplish and too few capable of doing it. Knowing that the righteous are more than willing to sacrifice a bit of temporary shalom for the sake of eternal elevation for their offspring. So it brings me to the Midrash Rabbah insight where it says, It is written, Adonai examines the righteous one, but he despises the wicked and the lover of robbery. Rabbi Yonatan said, When examining his wares by knocking on them, the potter does not examine the weak flasks because he would not be able to strike them even once without breaking them. So which of them does he examine? He examines a high-quality flask, for even if he were to strike them several times, they would not break. So, too, the holy and blessed be he does not test the wicked. Rather, he tests the righteous. As the verse says, Adonai examines the righteous ones, but he despises the wicked and the lover of robbery. And it is also written, and it happened after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Bring him up there as an offering. It says, Rabbi Yose ben Hanina said, The flax worker, when he knows that his flax is of high quality, he beats it extensively. Why is that? Because the more he pounds it, the flax, the more it improves in its quality. And the longer it is that he beats it, the better it becomes. But when he knows that his flax is of poor quality, he does not beat it extensively. Why not? Because he does not have a chance to beat it even once without breaking it. So too the holy and blessed be he does not test the wicked. Rather, he tests the righteous. As the verse states, Adonai examines the righteous one, but he despises the wicked and the lover of robbery. Rabbi Eliezer said it's comparable to a homeowner who had two cows, one strong and the other weak. Upon which cow would he place the yoke? What would he not place it on the one that was strong? So too the holy and blessed be he. Test specifically the righteous, as the verse says, Adonai examines the righteous one. Why was, why was Noah, why was he chosen for this mission of of building the ark and, and all the responsibility of these animals and trying to keep them alive to repopulate the earth and re, renew the earth. And so why was he chosen for that mission? Of all the people on the planet, why was he chosen? Well, he was righteous. Yes, that's true. But when you are righteous and your faith is in the living God, you can withstand those tests and those trials. And when you're going through something difficult in your life and you're, you, you, you just feel like you're at the breaking point, Know that that's exactly where the trainer brings you to test your strength to the point of breaking. That's exactly where, there's all kinds of examples I could give to this, but we know it to be true that, that the strong, those people who are part of elite groups, that elite organizations, physically and mentally, they're always tested to the point of breaking. And only the strong survive. And you have to have that mentality because too many people quit too soon. And as I said on the Aliyah, is that we were talking about uh, Yosef going down to uh, Egypt. And the first thing they did is strip him of his identity. That's the first thing the enemy wants to do is strip you of your identity. That's why the enemy constantly attacks you to make you think that you're not who God said you are. And he tricks people into, because he can't actually take your identity from you. But what he can do is he can trick you to surrender it. That's number one. Number two, he wants to get you focused on yourself and your problems. And then number three, he wants you to quit. 
Because I said in the Aliyah, you cannot defeat an enemy who will not quit. You just can't. That was Captain America's real superpower. His real moxie was, I could do this all day. That was the big thing. You can't beat a guy who, can't, who won't quit. And so that was Noah's thing is he wouldn't quit. He would just keep going, keep going. People, you know, can you imagine you're doing something for God? There's not a drop of rain yet. And for 120 years, you're building an ark, and it's just you and seven other people. That's your congregation. And people are making fun of you. They're putting Facebook pictures of you. They're tweeting about you. They're running news reports about you. Nobody wants to be you. And for 120 years, he endured that building the ark. And yet, when it was all said and done, it was just him and those seven people and all those animals that walked off of that boat and, and started the world anew. Very powerful. Very powerful indeed. The spirit of Messiah over the waters of Torah. It says that the spirit of God hovered, right? He sent a spirit, a ruach, that hovered over the waters. And this is what it says in the, the comments and the insights. It says, and God caused the spirit to pass. Rashi explains it like this. It was a spirit of consolation and appeasement which passed before him concerning the earth. This is the same divine spirit which hovered over the waters at the start of creation. For a covenant is made with the waters that they become calm whenever the divine spirit passes over them. We often observe the peaceful calm after a storm which only a few minutes before was breaking with all of its fury. Then one feels a breath of love of God passing over the earth like the breath or the ruach, same word, Ruach and spirit, Ruach means both spirit and breath in Hebrew, like a breath from the world to come. Now, what I found interesting about that insight was, notice it says that that spirit that was over the earth and drying up and calming the waters that had been so tumultuous was the same spirit that was over the waters in Brashit. Now, what did the sages say about that? They said that that spirit was the spirit of King Messiah. And the water is always indicative of Torah because the Torah is, can go either way. The Torah can bring you shalom and the, or the Torah can bring you a storm depending on where you stand with God. The Torah will judge you or it will uplift you. It will drown you or it will cause you to float depending on where you are with Hashem. This is one of the imageries of, of, of Yeshua walking on the water. Because he was master of the Torah, because he was the Torah, so he walked on the water. Now, but what calms our water? What's going to calm our world? We need the spirit of God hovering over the water, which the sages point out is the spirit of Mashiach. That's the point. According to the Hasidic insights, <clears throat> looking at this passage, we can also... Use this mindset to hasten, this mindset of Noah to hasten the coming redemption, the Geulah. This is what it says. Moses, or excuse me, Noah rather wanted to see that the water had abated. So it says here, as the Torah will recount, Noah did not leave the ark until God instructed him to leave. Okay? God was going to be the one to say, hey Noah, it's time for you to go out. So it would have been logical for Noah just to tell his family, hey, we're just going to hang out until God says leave. Until I get the text message, we're staying right here. <clears throat> but that's not what happened. What, if, that, if that's what God said, is I'm going to tell you to leave, then why did Noah bother sending out birds and pulling back the window? Why did he even bother? So it says, the lesson is particularly relevant and timely as we approach the Messianic era in the end of our exile. That Noah's efforts, which revealed his great yearning to fulfill the task that God had called him to. God, I'm chomping at the bit to have a, re a redo. 
that this attitude, that this longing to fulfill his mission expedited God's command to leave the ark. In other words, we know that the redemption is going to come whenever God decides it's going to come. But what we need to do is, number one, yearn for it, and number two, work towards it with our whole effort, and therefore expedite it. I love to highlight this point every chance I get because we have to, we, when we very often, we, I think it's maybe just our modern culture, and perhaps maybe it's, maybe it's our Western culture, but we, are, we have a very strong tendency just to be very self-focused and self-centered. And even those of us who like to think about others, we still, when we think about, well, I don't know if this, if I want to do this Torah thing because how it's going to affect my life and do for me and is this going to work for me and it's really kind of making my life difficult and, uh, or whatever, or I'm just, I'm just so out of the loop with everybody else in my neighborhood and me and I and I wonder if this is going to work for me and us and us. Uh, and not realizing that in actuality, what you're doing for Hashem, the life you live for Him, is actually working to expedite the redemption for all mankind. That your obedience to God's law is actually part of what He needs, if you will, to expedite the salvation of the world. We think about it like I'm working for my salvation, but in fact, we're partnering with God to make his place, his world, a home for him. That's what we're talking about here. It's interesting to note that the sages concluded that the flood ended on the first of Tishri. On that day, Noah sent the dove of Shalom, and it did not return. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why Rosh Hashanah has always been the day that we begin to see reconciliation with God. Now, last week I talked a great deal about um, Hamas, right? Robbery, what that word means. But I want to share this insight from the Midrash Rabbah that provides us the, the antidote, if you will, for the, the spirit of Hamas. It's a very fascinating story, and it says this. Alexander of Macedonia went to see a king at the other end of the world. This is, of course, like Alexander the Great. The king came out. He was, I'm sorry. The king was at the other end of the world beyond the mountains of darkness. Okay? In other words, there was a concealed place that nobody really went to, and it was always seemingly dark over there. So the king came out to meet Alexander, and he was carrying gold loaves in a golden tray. And Alexander said to him, do you think that I came here because I need your money? The king responded, if so, did you not have what, what to eat in your own land that you needed to come to this far off land and search for food? And Alexander said to him, I came here only because I wanted to learn how you dispense justice. So Alexander sat near the king to observe how he judged the people. One day, an individual came before the king and presented a, compl a complaint against his friend. He said to the king, This man sold me a ruin, and in it I discovered a treasure. The individual who purchased the ruin said to the king, I did not purchase a treasure, and I do not wish to keep it. And the individual who sold the ruin to his friend said, I sold the ruin and everything inside it, and I want you to keep the treasure. So one friend said, listen, I bought the ruin. After I found it, there was a treasure there. I didn't buy a treasure, so I want you to take the treasure back. I'm just going to keep what I paid for. And the man who sold the ruin said, when I sold the ruin, I sold whatever was with it. So you keep the treasure. There is a battle about keeping a treasure. Okay, follow along. So it says, the king said to the one, do you have a male child? And the man said, yes, I do. And the king said to the other, do you have a female child? And the man said, I do. And the king said to them, go and marry off this girl to this boy, and the monetary value of the treasure shall belong to both of them. 
The king observed Alexander sitting astonished. And the king said to Alexander, Why are you astonished? Have I not judged well? And Alexander responded, Yes, you did judge well. The king said to him, If such is the case had occurred in your land, how would you have judged? Alexander, who's the Greek, right? This is, isn't it interesting that this is part of the Midrash Rabbah for, for Parashat Noach, and here we are at Hanukkah talking about it? The difference between the Greek mind and the Jewish mind. So this is what Alexander said when he was asked, if this had happened and you were sitting on the, on the throne to judge, what, what, what would you have done? Alexander responded, we would have killed both the seller and the buyer, and the kingdom would have confiscated the wealth for bo of both parties. The king said to Alexander, does rain fall from the sky in your land? And Alexander responded, yes. The king said to Alexander, does the sun shine in your land? And Alexander responded, yes. And the king said to Alexander, are there small animals in your land? And Alexander responded, yes. And the king said to him, may the spirit of that man, Alexander, wither. It is not in your merit that rain descends in your land, nor is it in your merit that the sun shines upon you but only in the merit of the animals. Thus it is written, you save both man and beast, Adonai, which may be understood as, as, as saying that you, God, save man in the merit of the animals. Isn't that interesting? So the king is saying, listen, you have what you have, not because God cares about you, but because he cares about even the little bitty animals. And didn't Yeshua teach that very thing that God is considerate of the sparrow. And so because he's concerned about the sparrow and is cognizant when one of them falls, as a result of his focus on the sparrow, he provides for us. Yeshua is essentially confirming what the Midrash is saying here about what it means to be a kingdom of giving versus a kingdom of taking. This is what Noah was all about. The reason Noah was willing to, to go through this horrendous episode and cough up blood and work himself to death, practically, because he saw something greater than himself. And so it says here in this, I'm, I'm just going to, if you'll indulge me, I want to share with you the insights here because they're so powerful, the insight to this story. It says, Rabbi Eliyahu, Eliyahu Eliezer Dessler sees a profound lesson in our Midrash. There's a profound difference, he writes, between a taker and a receiver, just as there is between a giver and one from whom things are taken. A taker's focus is on himself. He is filled with self-love. He wishes to amass and give nothing in return. True, there are times when he will have to yield some of what he has to others, but even then, he does not give. It is simply that he cannot prevent something from being taken from him. A giver is filled with concern for others. His giving flows from the goodness of his heart. True, there are times when he will receive, but even when he receives, he gives. He acknowledges the generosity of the one who has given and expresses his sincere appreciation for it. Even when receiving, he's not a taker. Even when receiving, his focus is not on himself. His concern is for and appreciative of the giver, and all of that is evident. These are the royal extremes on display in the Midrash debate between the two kings. Alexander the Great conquered the civilized world, but that world was neither great nor was it civilized. It was a society of takers, and the more powerful the taker, the more rapturous was his taking. But behind the mountain of darkness was a kingdom of kindness. Theirs was a society of givers in which both giver and receiver shared the hidden treasures of giving. Neither wished to take, and both in the end received. Ohel Molshe and Bracious tells a moving story of a young couple who was engaged to be married. Three weeks before the wedding, the groom was diagnosed with cancer and was told he would have to undergo chemotherapy. Now, he insisted on calling off the wedding, unwilling to subject the bride to the trials and uncertainties of his illness. The bride insisted on proceeding with the wedding, 
and refusing to allow the groom to face his difficult future alone. They presented their dispute, as it were, to Rav, to Rav Chaim Kebsky and agreed to abide by the sage's verdict. Rav Chaim's pasuk was unequivocal. The couple should marry, as planned, and he cited our Midrash in the support. Hazal and our Midrash are teaching us that when each side in a dispute is concerned for the welfare of the other side, when each side wishes to forgo his own advantage to benefit the other side, then there must be a solution according to which both sides win. Under the circumstances, there was only one way that both would give and both would receive, and that was for them to be married. And amid copious tears of joy, the wedding was celebrated as planned with the participation of the elderly sages, sage rather, and his sacred blessings of long, happy, and fruitful life together. The story of Noah, what's interesting is we find here in reading about these things, is that the story of Noah and, and the, the flood and the animals and the, and the ship, we think about it as a story of God destroying the earth, and then we think about it as God actually mikvahing the earth in order to we restore it to its uh, new, renewed form. But ultimately, it's a story of giving. Ultimately, it's a story of service. Ultimately, it's a story of a man who's willing to go beyond his own cares and his own needs in order to do the will of God and the work of God. Everything Noah did, he did for, for animal kind and mankind. And it's interesting that when people get defeated in their life and when they go through trials and tribulations and when they, their faith begins to falter, you will always find something common at the root and that is a focus on self. It's true, I've been there. I've had the pity party and it was always about me. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. Right? That's the problem. But when you are focused on what is going to benefit somebody else, and when they're focused on what's going to benefit you, then both people benefit. This is the beauty of community. Everybody benefits. The tide, in this case, instead of drowning us, lifts all boats. When we work together, we see things amazing that are accomplished. Did we not all park together in the parking lot? It wasn't reserved for one person. But working together and being diligent in prayer and faithful in all those things produced this, just to use a natural example. So the message here is we have to, we have to leave the ark. Serving others, I would point out, is a critical element to a joyful, fulfilling, and healthy life. When we're talking into Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah? I I had the class on Wednesday night about publicizing the miracle. That is also an expression of it's not about us. We want others to see the light. We don't keep the light concealed. This is what Mashiach is talking about. Don't put your light under a table, keeping it high. Let it out. Let everybody see it. You want everybody to embrace the light. Don't keep it to yourself. Everything we do, even the mitzvah of rededication, that's what Hanukkah is all about. The mitzvah of dedication to God, rededicating our lives to God. What's God say to us? Make sure you put your light where somebody else can see it. Because while we're lighting the Hanukkah and we're letting, making sure that it's in a position where everybody can see it, we are naturally now what? We are, it's so brilliant of God because now we're not, we're focused on others. Can they see it? You know, we put the Hanukkah in our little uh, window there over the sink and sometimes I or my wife will go out and say, okay, a little bit to the left so you can see see it better. What does that mean? I'm not concerned about me. I'm not seeing it. I'm in the house. I'm worried about them out there. Can they see it? So it makes our mitzvah focus not on us. And I might add, just to throw in a little extra there, when I put a a Hanukkah in my window, I am embracing my identity. 
Everybody that sees the Hanukkah, oh, those are Jews. <laughs> Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> yeah, so our neighbor, yeah, that's right. My neighbor said the last night. We have to leave the ark. It says here that God told Moses to leave the ark. It says, we have seen entering the ark as a metaphor for the need to envelop ourselves in Torah study and prayer. And that's all great. Everybody needs a dedicated time. The sages encourage us to have a dedicated, a set-apart time every day. It's called the Aliyah day. Um, a set-apart time every day to study Torah. At least 30 minutes. Every day. But that's not where we live. That's not where we live. It says here, we are nevertheless instructed to leave it for the true purpose of entering the ark is to ultimately emerge from it and enter the world in order to transform it into God's home. We have to leave ourselves. We have to leave our ark. We have to study with the intention of God Help me to study so that I can become a better person, that I can be filled up with your wine in order to serve it to somebody else. That has to be our... But because if our Torah study is all self-focused, then we get lifted up in pride and arrogance and we go around pointing the finger, well, you're not a real Jew because you're not wearing your tallit just like that. Because you didn't say this word properly or you didn't do this particular hal- halacha the exact same way you're supposed to do it. And you're so arrogant and puffed up. And by the way, you haven't, done, you haven't lifted a little finger to help them. I'm sorry, that sounds so familiar when I said that. You put a heavy burden on them and you don't even lift your little finger to help them. Because your Torah study wasn't about them. And that's why Yeshua said, I didn't come here to be served. I came here to serve. And by the way, he is the Torah. Wait a minute. He is the Torah, which means the Torah is about serving, not about being served. He just told us what Torah study is all about. You've got to be willing to leave your ark. Kind of as an aside, I just have a couple minutes left here, but I just want to say that in the portion this week, we hear an interesting story about um, the cupbearer, right? Uh, the cupbearer tells this, this dream to the dreamer who interprets dreams, And he said, I had a dream, and there was a vine, and there were three branches, and then it sprouted fruit, and then I took the fruit and crushed the fruit and put it into a cup, and I put it into the palm of Pharaoh's hand. It's interesting because I don't have time to get into this. You have to go back to Aleon and find out that Yosef represents the suffering Messiah, and then later there's going to be a, a ruling Messiah called Messiah ben David. They're the same Messiah, but he comes first to suffer and die for our sins, and then later to rule and reign. That's a 100% Jewish thought. Well, what's interesting, though, as I was analyzing this, is that I realized that the dream that Yosef had where everybody is bowing down to him, that's a dream from Messiah ben David. Where was the dream for Messiah ben Yosef? And the dream was is when he met the cupbearer. Because Chulin 92a says that the vine is the Torah and the three branches are Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the teachers of the Torah. That's us. So Yeshua said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He's the Torah and we're the ones who are supposed to teach Torah to the ages. And the cupbearer said there was grapes and the grapes are crushed. The, the Torah was crushed and made wine, poured into a cup and was put into the palm. Whenever we say the Kiddush, we often hold the cup in our, on our palm when we say Kiddush. So the Mashiach is saying, and by the way, when did the cupbearer, he was restored to the Pharaoh's side three days later. So he said, there's a vine and there's branches and there's crushed grapes that's going to be put into a new wine, a new cup, and three days later, I will be at the right hand of the Father putting that Kiddush cup in his hand again. 
But I digress. We have to leave the ark. We have to be willing to go outside of ourselves. And I, it says here, interesting, two more things, and then I'm going I'm to stop. We're right here at Hanukkah time, right? There's other things going on besides Hanukkah. We won't get into all that. But this is very interesting because right here at Hanukkah time, we're learning about Noah. Noah go out, goes out and builds an altar. And it's interesting because the sages, they often focus on things. I'm the, the sages are, in case you don't know, we're talking about sages that go back 2,000 years. Th those are the sages I'm talking about. Some of them are like Haggai, Zechariah, Mordecai, Obadiah. Those are considered some of the sages, the men of the great assembly. They have books in the Bible, in other words. They're not just guys sitting around, you know, on YouTube. And so they, they often focus on things that you and I, we just wouldn't necessarily focus on. Hashem gifted them that way. But they, they point out that why did he build an altar? Why didn't he just set up a stone? Like take a single stone, set it up, do something. Why did he actually build an altar? And the answer is because it says here, that what was the meaning of the building of the altar? It is evident from many passages in the Bible that the altar signifies an elevation of the earth towards the heavens, built by man's own hands. In other words, building an altar is part of our mission to take what is mundane and make it something holy. It says taking a single stone and offering a sacrifice on it would mean remaining on nature's terms. That we're ruled by nature. This is the problem with the climate, the climate change religion, and it is a religion is that we're subject to nature. And we're not subject to nature because in our kingdom, we can, we can that's, where, that's what miracles are all about. God can part the sea. We're not subject to nature. So it says here, um, but building an altar expresses the desire to rise above the level of nature in order to seek the level of God-like, free-willed human beings who dedicates himself to God from his very essence. So it says, when other nations sought their gods, they often left the human sphere, believing they could find them more easily in nature. That's why a lot of the pagan festivals are a return to nature. I just, no, I don't want to be, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to be educational here. I need you to think about it. We, we, that's, that's why a lot of the pagan festivals go out to nature and bring nature into the house. There's a reason why. Okay? And it says here, certainly God can be discovered in nature, obviously, but he is even closer, but he is even closer to us and in all his splendor in the sphere of human life. When it's pure and healthy, that is. He says here his love is revealed in nature as omnipotent, but at the altar, when it's dedicated and consecrated, one stone put upon another, he's revealed as, as our Lord. This thought is of such importance to the Jewish mind. I'm just, I'm just going to read this, and you draw your own conclusion. This is about Noah, the altar, and making sure there's a fine line we separate between what we're doing here. It says, this is a reason why in Jewish law, it was forbidden to put any tree around the altar. Not even a board from a tree should remain around the altar in order to keep this distinction. Isn't that interesting that God made sure in the holy temple that there was such a clear distinction between what was right and what was wrong, serving God in truth and spirit and truth versus serving God through the worship of nature and other, because that's what idolatry ultimately is, right? Idolatry is ultimately looking at nature and making a God of it. Okay, that's a, at its root, that's what it is, no pun intended. So it's so important that God said, I want you to make sure. I want you to think about this. When we built the holy temple so many thousand years ago, God said, I want you to make sure that there's no tree around the altar anywhere. In fact, I don't even want any wood nearby. And today, what do we see people doing? 
This is why this type of stuff is so important because people go, whoa. We all get you couldn't bring a pig into the temple, but a tree, that's harmless, right? No, it's not, which is why pagans dance around them. Sing songs to them. It's why, it's why when you look at uh, that circle of stones there in England, what's it called? Stonehenge. It's a single stone set up. Notice that? One more thing. What's a true servant of it and I? I'm, 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 this is my second close. <laughs> what is the true servant of Adonai? The true servant of God is not a visionary, not a sage plunged into the mystical contemplation. This is from Rabbi Monk, by the way. Not a subtle philosopher, not a fanatic or exalted prophet. His religion, far from being limited to prayers, belief, ritual practices, or mortification, is first and foremost made up of absolute devotion to God. This devotion knows no bounds, is never failing, ready to sacrifice fortune, life itself, one's dearest affections, everything for the very love of God. The sacrifices are only the concertization of this ecstasy of devotion. That's why this, you don't need a sacrifice. Some would say, well, how do you get atonement without a sacrifice today, the sacrifice was only simply a concrete picture of what's going on right here anyway. That's why I don't need it. Because I, you, we are the sacrifice. And that's why the animal that sacrificed gives up his life that somebody else might be elevated. Our self-sacrifice has to be not for us, but for somebody else. That's the message of Noah. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. 